Welcome to the podcast from Plum Creek Community Church in Castle Rock, Colorado. Thanks for downloading my dad. I hope as you listen, you are challenged and encouraged by his message. Uh, to Plum Creek, glad that you are with us this morning. If uh, you're listening by podcast, welcome as well. My name's Gary. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, last week, if you were here, you know that we started a new series and uh, Doug shared that, that we are sharing this curriculum uh, from North Point, Church, uh, North Point Church in Atlanta. That's Andy Stanley's church, a great church out there. And today we are in week two of the series called Christian. Now, you're probably familiar with the name Anne Rice. Anne has written uh, several books, about 30, and she's had over 90 million uh, copies published. She, uh, uh, she knows that she is one of the most successful authors ever, at least in the modern era. Uh, she wrote primarily metaphysical gothic fiction. That's what it's called. It's about vampires. Uh, maybe you've seen the movie Interview with the Vampire. That came from one of her earliest books uh, uh, in the Vampire Chronicles. I know you've read them all, so I, I won't ask you to raise your hand if, if you read those. Uh, Anne was actually raised in the church, but when she was 18 years old, she, she left it. She just said, I'm done with that. And she became an atheist and went on to pursue her literary career, which was obviously very, very successful. So she's been everywhere in the world. She's met all kinds of people, people you and I will never meet. She's, she's very, very rich. But then in 1998, in her late 50s, she came back to the church. She left her atheist ways and came back to embrace her Christian faith. And when she came back, she committed her life uh, or her writing skills to writing about Christian things. And, and the very first thing she started writing was this trilogy of fiction on the life of Jesus. And at the end of the first book, there's this author note. And, and in the author note, there's kind of this summary where Anne describes how she came back to her faith. And here's basically how it happened. She had begun studying ancient Judaism. She's always had this fascination uh, with, with the Jews. And, and she wondered, why, do, why did so many ancient religions not survive into the modern era, but the Jews did? And, and so that just fascinated. Well, that led her uh, to study the fall of Jerusalem. That happened in 70 AD. And, and that's where uh, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews were, were executed, uh, many by crucifixion. Uh, the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem. That led her to then study other uh, primary sources. So she started looking at, at the New Testament Gospels and, and studying the life of Jesus. And through all of her studies, she became convinced that the accounts of Jesus' life found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were actually written shortly after Jesus' life. You see, she had always believed, like maybe some of you believe or have been taught, that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written like two to three hundred years after Jesus' life, which is how all of the legends and the, and the fables and all these stories of miracles came to be, because that's what happens over, over decades and hundreds of years. You kind of make the story grow. But now her research had led her uh, to believe that the Gospels were written much, much earlier by eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, or at least by people who had talked to these eyewitnesses, these eyewitnesses, which meant that there really wasn't enough time for all these legends and fables and stories of miracles to grow because the eyewitnesses would have still been alive. Which meant that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John might actually be historical documents about something that actually happened. 
Well, that changed everything for her. And she re-embraced her faith. She re-embraced Jesus. Now, isn't that cool? I mean, isn't, isn't that how most of you came to faith? You were sitting around one day wondering, hmm, ancient Judaism. I think I'll study ancient Judaism. Well, then Anne writes another book. This one's called Called Out of Darkness, and it's her story about how she came back to faith. So here's Anne Rice. She's, she's smarter than all of us. She's been everywhere in the world. She's met people you and I will never meet. She's richer than all of us. And she basically comes to faith through her intellect. And in these paragraphs that I'm going to read to you out of this book called Out of Darkness, she addresses some of the hardest issues that many of us have wrestled with for years. And here's what some of what she says. He, God knew how or why everything happened. He knew the disposition of every single soul. He wasn't going to let anything happen by accident. Nobody was going to hell by mistake. This was his world, all this. He had complete control of it. His justice, his mercy, were not our justice or our mercy. What folly to even imagine such a thing. And guys, some of you are here this morning just to hear that statement because you've been so hung up on the justice of God. And Anne basically says, why? It's God's justice, not ours. She continues, I didn't have to know how he was going to save the unlettered and the unbaptized or how he would redeem the conscientious heathen who had never spoken his name. I didn't have to know how my gay friends would find their way to redemption or how my hard-working secular humanist friends could or would receive the power of his saving grace. I didn't have to know why good people suffered agony or died in pain. He knew. Wow. And it was his knowing that overwhelmed me. His knowing that became completely real to me. And this is for some of you today. And why should I remain apart from him just because I couldn't grasp all this? He could grasp it. Guys, in those few paragraphs, she just tackled some of the major issues, like I said, that we've struggled with for years. And what's her answer? Why would I remain separated from God just because I can't figure him out? Profound stuff. So here's Anne. She's, she's come back to the faith, re-embraced Jesus, and, she, and she's kind of following uh, the whole Christian thing for about 10 years. And then some of you know this. In July of 2010, she quit. She quit Christianity. She wrote this on her Facebook page. Today, I quit being a Christian. To which I'm thinking, well, you can't quit. You're just getting started. I mean, what about all those, those helpful things that you wrote? Today, I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or to being part of Christianity. Okay, wait. Like, you're going to remain committed to Christ, but not to Christianity? Are we allowed to do that? She goes on. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. She says, I love Jesus. 
I just don't like the quarreling. I don't like the hostility. I don't like the dis... I don't even know what that word means. That's how smart she is. Had to look it up. She's not done. For 10 years, I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. And what saddens me is that I want to say, I don't get it. I'm I'm so confused. Except that I do get it. And I know that many of you do too. And says, my faith in Christ is central to my life. My conversion from a pessimistic atheist lost in a world that I didn't understand to an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God is crucial to me. In other words, I don't want to go back to my atheistic, unbelieving, pessimistic ways. But following Christ does not mean following his followers. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity and always will be, no matter what Christianity is has been, or might become. And what we discovered last week is that maybe Anne's not that far off. Because here's what we discovered. The word Christian can mean anything we want it to mean. Because the word Christian is not defined in the Bible. In fact, it's only used three times. And the word Christian was a derogatory term that the the people who weren't followers of Jesus used to describe the people who were followers of Jesus. It It was derogatory. And then it stuck over time. It's like when the followers of the Grateful Dead started being called deadheads. That was derogatory. Now they wear it on t-shirts. When I was a kid growing up, uh, the, the word geek was bad. Then someone got an idea, let's put it on the side of a Volkswagen and, and start a business. And, and now you can say, hey, I'm a geek. I'm, I'm coming over to your house to fix your computer. Well, that's how it was with Christian. It started out as, as a derogatory term. Then over time, the followers of Jesus embraced it even to the point that they were willing to die because they were Christians. But the problem with the word Christian is it can be anything you want it to be. And that's why you can have Christians on every side of every issue. Whether it's a political issue or a legal issue, an economic issue, all of the social issues, you can have Christians all over the place on on every side. Because you can make a Christian anything you want it to be. And when you open up the New Testament, you will find nothing to conflict with your definition of Christian because it's not in there. It's not defined, and that's the problem. So last week, Doug actually opened up the New Testament and and lo and behold, he showed us that Jesus referred to his followers as something else. In fact, the first century followers of the message of Jesus, they referred to themselves as something else. Do you remember what it was? Disciples. They called themselves disciples. Now that is a terrifying word. And the reason it's terrifying is because as long as you're a Christian, you can you can be and believe anything you want, you can do anything you want, but the moment you start using the term disciple, well, that's so well defined in Scripture, it's scary. So last week we opened up the New Testament and, and, and saw that in his very last days with his disciples, Jesus said, guys, if you forget everything else, don't forget this. 
So I want to start by reviewing where, where Doug took us last week, and, and then we're going to look at something else uh, this morning. And, and if you're a regular here at Plum Creek, you know that, that we always try to have a main thought of the day or a main takeaway, and, and I've got one, but it's not going to come until the very end. So don't worry, you can, you can still take notes, and you haven't missed anything, uh, but, it's, but it's coming. And I also want to say something to men, because you see, men... When we get to this topic of, of what Doug shared last week, of, of what Jesus said, some of you are going to be tempted to think, well, that's great for little kids. I mean, that's great for kids jam. That's great for jungle jam. But Gary, that doesn't work in the real world. But men, before we look at what he said and, and you just kind of say, yeah, whatever. Just remember this. This is a 30-something-year-old man who marched into a city knowing he was going to be arrested, probably put to death, and he went anyway. Most of you wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. This is a guy who grew, grew up seeing rotting corpses on Roman crosses. Whatever, what every Galilean and every Judean feared, Jesus knew about It was not theory for him. He had seen it. He had smelled it. And he knew that by going into Jerusalem, he may very well end up being one of those rotting corpses on a Roman cross. And he went to Jerusalem anyway. Jesus could have taken back all of the things that were getting him, all the things he had said that were getting him into trouble. And they would have set him free. But he didn't. So before you're tempted to discount What Jesus says is soft, just remember who said it. So last week, we saw how Jesus gathered his guys, his disciples together, and he says in verse 34 of John chapter 13, a new command I give you. Guys, if you forget everything else, don't forget this. Love one another. And that little Greek word that Jesus used uh, for, the, for the word new, it, it can mean unusual, it can mean strange, odd, impractical. It, it's like you've never thought of it this way before. So he clarifies what he just said in verse 35, and he says, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Guys, I know you've never thought of it this way before. But you need to love one another the way that I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, I thought it was what we believed. Yeah, you got to believe some things. I thought it was what we, or how we behaved. Yeah, behavior is important. I thought we were going to be Christians. No. Jesus said, if you want, people to know that you're my disciple, then you need to love one another. So that's where Doug took us last week. That's that's kind of where we landed. And so where I want to take us now is approximately 55 years into the future. 55 years after Jesus said this, and, and John, the man who wrote down those words that we just looked at in John 13, he wrote them down in, in the Gospel of John. He is now an old man. It's been 55 years. He's seen a lot. He's seen emperors come and go. 
He knows Jerusalem has been destroyed. In fact, the Jews aren't even allowed in the city anymore. He heard about the thousands and thousands of Jews who were executed and crucified and murdered. He's seen bloodshed we can't even imagine. He knows that temple worship is is over and probably will never come back because the temple has been destroyed once and for all. He's heard about Peter, how he was arrested, taken to Rome where they crucified him. Some say upside down. He knows about Paul, who he too was arrested and taken to Rome and then beheaded just outside the city. He knows about Matthew, who was burned at the stake because he wouldn't recant his belief in Jesus. His own brother James has been beheaded as well. John knows he's one of the only original disciples left, maybe the only one. They've either been murdered, dispersed, or he doesn't know where they are. And for whatever reason, God has chosen to preserve his life, and now he's an old man. And after all these years, some 55 years, John sits down to write a letter to the followers of Jesus who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And he can write anything he wants. He's John. And he chooses to write a letter. And we know it as 1 John. And this is what he says. 1 John 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Okay, John, really? Love one another? How'd that work out for you and the guys? They're dead. Isn't the church pretty much in hiding? I mean, we know Jesus meant well, but love one another? Shouldn't we be working on something new? I mean, let's let's try and jumpstart this movement again. He goes on, Everyone who loves has been born of God. And knows God. In other words, John says the key characteristic, the way that you really know someone is a God person, is how well he or she loves. Verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God. Okay, hold on. Come on, John. I mean, my, my preacher growing up, I want to really call him a loving guy. But man, could he preach. He certainly knows God. And John's like, no, I don't think so. Oh, okay, John, what about this woman I know? I mean, I mean, she is an amazing Bible teacher. Now, nobody really likes to be around her, but, but you, should, you should see her teach. And John's like, no, trust me, this is still the deal. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why, John? Because God is love. And after everything John has been through, the fall of Jerusalem where hundreds and thousands of Jews are murdered, the deaths of Peter, Paul, Matthew, James, maybe all of the original disciples, the followers of Jesus all in hiding, how can you say, John, that God is love? How do you know that? And John says, let me tell you how I know that. Verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He says, let me take you back in time. Because I saw what Jesus did. This is not something I read in a book. There are a few of us who were there and we saw it. And I will never, ever doubt the love of God because of what I saw. 
This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. That we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Two little words there in verse 10. Us, our, us, our, us, our. Do you know what that means? That means that every single person you and I come face to face with is someone that God loves and has sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for. My mother-in-law? Yeah. I've got a great mother-in-law. Maybe you don't, but regardless, she's an us. She's an our. Your boss. The president of your HOA. Seriously. All the freshmen in your school, your math teacher, the people you work with, the person that cut you off in traffic this week, the man that delivers your mail, the store clerks that you interact with, everyone you talk with is an us or an our, and God loves them, and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for them. Then he ends with this, verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Since God, we also ought. Since God, we also ought. That little Greek word ought, it's a financial term. It communicates indebtedness. There is a debt-debtor relationship that John wants us to understand in our relationship with God and with others. Meaning that since God so loved us, we owe it to others to love them. And I know we've waited a little, a, a little bit this morning, but here's the main thought. You can write it down because, because this is the takeaway and it personalizes it for everybody. I owe it to God to love you. It's a debt-debtor relationship. Since God loved me, I owe it to God to love you. And since God loves you, you owe it to God to love me. Guys, that's a game changer. Because that takes it out of the realm of whether the person deserves it, which is generally where we hang out. So every time you act unlovable and I'm tempted to respond in an unloving way, I need to remember I'm not loving you because I ought to love you. I am loving you because God chose to love me. And there's this sense, please hear this, there, there is this sense in which I am so indebted to God because of everything he's done for me. But the way he wants me to pay him back is by loving you. How are we going to argue with that? After everything God has done for us, the way he's asking us to pay him back is to love others. That changes it big time. And that's what God wants for all of us. To love others in such a way that, that people go, wow, look at how they love each other. To love people in such a way that our whole church lives like, I owe it to God to love you. To love people in such a way that it will never be said again of Christ's followers that they are quarrelsome, hostile, and disputatious. 
Can you imagine if just for a year, just for a month, just for a week, we decided to stop being Christian and to start being disciples who said, I owe it to God to love you. You see, I don't think Anne Rice would have quit that. Because people don't quit. Wow, they sure love me well. Wow, she just forgave me. Wow, he, he, he's not holding that against me. Wow, they, they just accepted me unconditionally. I don't think people are inclined to quit that. So maybe there's a sense in which we all need to stop being Christians and to once again become disciples. Can you imagine what would happen in a family, in a neighborhood, in a, in a community, in a world, if we just got that one command right? Here's what would happen, because it's happened before. People would, would get around us, and, and they wouldn't say it out loud, but as they got to know us, they'd be thinking, man, I'm just kind of drawn to these people. I mean, look at how they love each other. It isn't fake and it's not weird and it's not coerced. It's just real. And I'm just kind of drawn to them. They just live life so differently than I do. Their values are different and it's it's just weird. It's nothing that they've said and nothing that they've done, but I just kind of feel guilty when I'm around them because I'm not like that. They're just so forgiving so generous, so honest, so hardworking, so uh, 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 not caught up in peer pressure. They don't keep up with the Joneses. And I just kind of feel guilty because I'm not like that. But I don't feel condemned. And it's just the oddest thing. I'm drawn to that. I want what they have. I mean, isn't that how most of us came to faith? We met some people like that. We got introduced to a group like that. We found a community like that. So as we head into our afternoon, as we get ready to start a new work week, students, I'm sorry, but as you get ready to go back to school, let's just decide, since God loved me, I owe it to him to love you. And since God loves you, you owe it to God to love me. Let's pray. Dear Father, it is so simple to say, but it's hard to do. So help us change the way we think about others. That because you love me, I owe it to others to love them. God, living like that would change me. Living like that would change my family. Living like that would change my school. Living like that would change this town. God, may we be part of the generation that turns this thing around and starts doing it right. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.